This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Cody Marincer talks about the theological and cardinal virtues. What are they? How do we practice living these virtues? Let's find out. Here's Thomas More Prep Marion High School Theological Instructor, Cody Marincer. Howdy, folks. This is Cody Marincer. I'm new to the program, but very excited to be here with you guys today. Because I am new, I'd like to give you just a little bit of background on myself. I am happily married to my wife, Karen, for 12 years now, and we have six wonderful children. At least our sixth one will be uh, coming here in just a couple of weeks, depending on when this actually airs. So please do send all of your prayers my way, and uh, we would greatly appreciate that. Beyond uh, that, I would uh, just uh, add that uh, I am a convert to the Catholic faith. I converted not long after my wife and I were married, and I now teach at TMP Marion here in Hayes, and uh, I teach theology to the sophomores and seniors up there. So... That's just a little bit of a background on me. I thought uh, maybe it would be good to do that as I start into my first show here and uh, hope that it comes out well. With that being said, let's go ahead and start with prayer because I think that uh, is the most important thing that we should always do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, we ask your presence here with us today as we listen for your will in our lives. We pray this talk will be enlightening to all listening and that you will help us to decrease so that you may increase. We ask all of this through the intercession of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you very much, folks, for tuning in today. I'm going to talk about a topic that... um, I think it would be great for us to all understand more so that we can really take it upon our lives and uh, do what we should with uh, the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues. And so as we start with what are the virtues, uh, I would go to the catechism. And in catechism, paragraph number 1803, it says, A virtue is an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. It allows the person not only to perform good acts, but to give the best of himself. The virtuous person tends toward the good with all his sensory and spiritual powers. He pursues the good and chooses it in concrete actions. So something that I have learned through teaching theology to high school students is that for some people, you know, the uh, definition itself will suffice. Uh, Some people can look at that, they can understand the definition and go, yeah, okay, that's good. But for some people, and especially myself in in many instances, stories or examples work a lot better. And sometimes I just need to dig a lot deeper into things than just what the, the definition is telling us right there. So what I would say is let's first just take that definition and pick it apart a little bit. And I would start with the first sentence there that says a virtue is an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. Now, first off, if we look at that, what is habitual? Obviously, I think everybody out there listening knows that habitual means we've made a habit out of it. And a firm disposition means that I'm set in my ways. This is what I'm going to do. And it says it's to do the good. But if you are anything like me, there are probably a lot of things that you have done in your life that have been habits and that have been a firm disposition, but maybe they weren't so much to do the good. And that then is part of the big problem when we talk about the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and the cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. If we're going to have those things in our lives, then we have to get rid of first the vices 
that we have allowed to come about in our lives by um, habituating them and making a firm disposition towards them instead of towards those virtues. So having said that, Let's break down then what these virtues are, and I think I'll start with the cardinal virtues. So with the cardinal virtues, something that you're going to notice is that none of these virtues act on their own for very long, which should be a great help to us because once we start working on one, hopefully the others should be starting to then pull in and help inform and help the other ones grow. And so as we take the first cardinal virtue of prudence, The Catechism states in 1806 that prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. The prudent man looks where he is going. So prudence, you've heard of people saying you need to make a prudential judgment. And I think we understand that when somebody says that, they mean that you're going to use your reasoning. You're going to use your intellect. You're going to use your conscience then to act in this situation, whatever it is that you are undertaking. And when somebody says, you know, you need to make a prudential uh, judgment, then usually it's not something as simple as uh, what do you want for lunch? Usually we're talking about big decisions in our lives. And a lot of times those are those big moral decisions that we're talking about. And so when we talk about a prudential judgment and using then our intellect and our mind and our conscience, Um, A lot of people don't understand also what a conscience is. And to understand how uh, prudence works then, I believe we have to understand our conscience as well. Many people have the erroneous thought that a conscience is simply the angel on one shoulder, you know, and the devil on the other, like we've seen in many uh, shows, movies. And they're kind of battling back and forth, and the person turns to the one side and goes, oh, yeah, you're making a good point. And he kind of turns to the other side and goes, oh, you know, you're kind of making a good point, too. And they're wrestling back and forth, and even sometimes the angel and the devil, they they uh, get into a fight on the people's shoulder, you know, and one of them ends up coming out on top. And then unfortunately, with Hollywood, a lot of times it shows the devil coming out on top, and then the person's like, hee, hee, let me go do this. Uh, but that's not what a conscience is, okay? That would be an erroneous conscience or an ill-informed conscience. And so to know what a conscience is, first, I think it's a great help to understand the word conscience itself uh, basically means with knowledge. And so if a conscience then is not just this feeling, but it is means with knowledge, and we can understand, well, yes, you can have an ill-informed conscience. You can have an erroneous conscience. Well, if I had an erroneous conscience, then I wouldn't be able to make a very good prudential judgment, would I? So what do I need to do then to f- inform my conscience? See, and that's the big thing. That's where uh, all of uh, this uh, virtue centers around then. If we're going to inform our conscience, we have to be seekers of the truth. And we have to be willing to go wherever the truth is going to take us. And I myself, being a convert, you know, I I had to do some homework. I had to uh, look into, uh, you know, is this plausible? Is the Catholic faith something that I think is going to lead me to the truth? Or do I think it's going to lead me further away? And after much contemplation, after talking with several priests and After just looking at the church itself and looking at Christianity as it is out in our world today, I personally did come to that decision of understanding, of reasoning, of my conscience saying, hey, look, everything that you're looking at is leading you here. Everything that you've been studying, that you've been asking these people about, the truth is pointing at the Catholic Church. 
And so that's where we need to start. And I understand that it is really, really hard for some people to do that. But what we need to get to in our lives is that position where we have actually put some effort into it, where we've put some work into it. And we've said, you know what, if I'm going to be a seeker of the truth, then like I said a minute ago, I've got to be able to go wherever it's going to lead me. And if we then believe our Catholic faith, which is why we call ourselves Catholic in the first place, then we have to believe that this church was started by Jesus himself. And we have to believe then that he gave his apostles the authority to pass on his teachings and that he didn't set up many churches, but that he gave us this one church to guide us. And if we can get ourselves to that point, and we honestly can say, I do believe this. I don't believe that Jesus left everybody out there to their own interpretation of a book, which at his time wasn't even written, but that the church actually wrote this book, the church compiled this book, and the church then is the divine author of it. Well, if we get ourselves to that point, then we should be able to say, okay, I am going to allow then God and his church, his authority going through the magisterium to lead me to this truth. And if we do that, if we can humble ourselves to say, you know what, maybe God just knows a little bit better than I do, then that's where we can start on informing that conscience. And that's the first step that we need to take so that we, instead of having an erroneous conscience, will have a true conscience. And when we have a true conscience, then we can go into situations and we can use that gift of prudence, which is using our reasoning going, okay, the Catholic Church has taught me this about this moral situation. Even if I don't understand it completely, I believe they've been given the authority by God to speak on matters of faith and morals, and I believe that they are right, even if I can't understand it completely right now. And so what I need to do is I need to study, I need to put some work into it, I need to understand it better, but I do need to take the authority of the church and I need to apply it to this situation right now. And that's how we get that gift of prudence to start working then in our lives. That's how we make those prudential judgments. And so a really quick example because like I said, sometimes examples work better in situations than just a definition. But the way that somebody can have an erroneous conscience would be, let's just take a young lady who has been raised in poverty. She's been raised by her single mother. Uh, they live in a place where um, it is just complete poverty. And all she has been taught her entire life is that when you get old enough, we're going to put you on birth control. And if something would happen to happen, then we've got abortion to back that up because you don't want to have to raise a child in a situation that I'm having to raise you in. And you don't want another child in poverty like you are. That would be the worst thing ever. Well, a young lady like that, having been taught that, having no moral grounds from anything else that she's been taught, is going to then come to those decisions in those situations where her conscience, because it is now erroneous, is not going to automatically tell her to do the right thing. It is going to be telling her, everything I've been taught to this point is telling me to get on contraceptives and to get on abortion if something happens, and that's the right thing to do. And so there, folks, is why we must inform our consciences correctly so that we can make, once again, those correct decisions and we can use a correct conscience to inform our decisions properly. And there we have, then, the gift of prudence.
So I think this would be a good spot then to talk about the theological virtues. The theological virtues are faith, hope, and charity. And the reason why I think this is a good spot is because if we start with that first one of faith, First, I think it would be good to um, say that the theological virtues are gifts that are infused in us at baptism. So they come from God himself. But that first theological virtue of faith, the Catechism states, Faith is the theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe all that he has said and revealed to us, and that Holy Church proposes for our belief because he is truth itself. And so that goes right back to what I was just talking about uh, with our conscience, with uh, informing it uh, by the moral teachings of the church. That gift of faith itself, then, is what's going to help us along that path. Now, here's another one of the problems that we have. Another one of the problems is that we think for some reason that because these gifts are infused at us at baptism, that they're just these gifts that we're just going to constantly have. Well, our spiritual muscles are just like our physical muscles. If we sat in a bed all day long, 24 hours a day, day in and day out, for weeks on end, months, you know, if we were completely bedridden, our muscles would start to atrophy, they would shrink up, they would shrivel, and before long, uh, we would have no muscles left in our body to actually help us do what we need them to do, and they just would not work. Well, why do we all of a sudden then think that uh, our spiritual muscles are going to be any different? And they're not. And this was a beautiful thing that I picked up from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And I would say, if you have never read that book, please read it. I've got a whole classroom set, and I would put um, out there that as long as I'm not using them, and as long as the school uh, tells me that I can, um, I would allow anybody to come and check one out from me and uh, read it, because I think it's a great it's a great work done by C.S. Lewis, and even though he was not Catholic, he did write very, very well on this topic, and I think the book Mere Christianity has probably made more Catholics than a lot of other Catholic books even have. But uh, he talks about that, that uh, these gifts that we have been given, especially in the theological virtues, that they're just like anything else, that if we don't use them, they'll go away. And so when it comes to faith, he says, we have to constantly remind ourselves of what we believe. Now that might seem odd, and it might seem like what do you mean? I mean, faith is just faith. But I agree with him 100%. I think he hits the nail right on the head there. That You can look around us and look at all those people who aren't reminding themselves that the Catholic faith is the truth. It teaches God's truth. It is Jesus' church. And it cannot err when it comes to those matters of faith and morals. Look at all these people who stop going to Mass, stop with their prayer life, and just kind of think, well, you know, I guess I'm not in the right church. Well, it's not really their reasoning that's getting in the way there. I think the reason why most people leave the Catholic faith is because they're not putting anything into it. You know, I've heard the excuse from people before that um, the reason they left the church was because they're not being fed. And to me, that's just nonsensical. Because the Catholic Church is the only place that you can find the bread of life. This gift that we have been given, that's going to feed our souls. So if you're saying that you're going to a Catholic Mass and you're not being fed, well then that just doesn't add up, right? And so if you're going and you're saying, well, yeah, it just doesn't really move me, right? Well. Another thing that I would point out, I think, is a, a, a video that I watched by this priest of a Catholic school. And I don't remember where it was at, but what he said 
was just so spot on. I've got to relay it to you guys. And uh, I do have to give credit where credit is due. My great friend, Mr. Bill Mayer, who is also a, a theology teacher at the junior high side up at TMP. And he is also our uh, spiritual director up there. He is the one who sent this to me. And when I watched it, I was just blown away because it was just amazing. So this priest says that people go to Mass, especially young people, and they think that Mass is going to be the fulfillment in and of itself. Well, the beautiful thing is he likens it to the casual sex culture that's out there today. And so he calls it the casual Catholic culture. And he says the problem that people have in our society is they think that these sexual interactions with their partners are going to create the relationship. But that's not what creates the relationship. What creates the relationship is going out and dating, getting to know one another, talking with each other. And if you don't have that, and all you have is a sexual relationship, well then it's no wonder that it's going to fall flat. It's no wonder that it's not going to work. And it's no wonder that you're going to be looking at it before long going, what am I really getting out of this? He says the same thing is happening to those people who go to church and say, I'm not getting anything out of Mass. Well, if you are going to Mass, which is the wedding supper of the Lamb, we're going to meet our bridegroom there, and we think that we don't need to pray and talk to our bridegroom before we go to consummate our relationship with him, well, then it's no wonder that we show up and we think, like this priest says, that the Mass itself is going to be this moving, awe-inspiring thing that's going to create the relationship. No, it's not. And it really is that simple. We have to enter into a discussion with our Lord, which is what prayer is. And we have to listen to Him talk, which is what the Scriptures are. And so if we're not reading the Scriptures, if we're not spending time in prayer, then it's no wonder we're going to go to Mass and we're going to feel empty. And so wrapping that all back up then is going back to that thing we have to constantly remind ourselves what we believe that might seem nonsensical, or it might not nonsensical, it might seem kind of silly or kind of stupid, like whatever, no, faith is faith. No. No matter what you believe in, even if you are an atheist, C.S. Lewis says, you cannot be a good Christian or a good atheist if you don't remind yourself why you believe what you believe. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And so when we look at that gift of faith, the theological virtue by which we believe in God and we believe all that he has said and revealed to us and that the Holy Mother Church proposes for our belief because God is truth itself, that brings us back to that gift of prudence where we have put ourselves in the position of humbling ourselves and saying, I believe God. I believe the church, and now I'm going to use that more, those morals that they taught me once again to make those judgments. So the second theological virtue then is hope. And hope in our world, we know when most people say that, when they say, I hope this, I hope that, it's more like a fantastical, whimsical, like, uh, you know, maybe this will happen, but maybe it won't. And so it's kind of just a simple wish. But the theological virtue of hope is not a wish. And so let me read you the definition of that one. Coming out of the Catechism, paragraph number 1817, it says, Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. And I would ask you to go and read that once again out of the catechism, because as I'm going through these with students at TMP, I ask them a word in there that could really explain what hope means, not in the way that the world sees it, but in the theological virtue. And it's really awesome because usually somebody raises their hand and just gets this right off the bat. And that word there in that paragraph in that definition is trust, right? It's not, well, God has told me that I should pray and I should have a relationship with him. 
And so I'm going to try it and maybe something will work. Maybe it won't. I don't know. That's not what it is at all. Hope is a firm disposition, a firm trust, because number one, I've got faith in Christ and his church. I'm going to remind myself of it. And because I believe in that and because I believe in God, then I trust that when he has promised me that he is my father and he will take care of me, then why would I not take everything to him? Get rid of my anxieties, get rid of my worries. And I'm not saying just sit back in health and wealth gospel. You know, I don't believe in that at all. Um, I don't believe that everybody is meant to be a millionaire because sometimes trials, sometimes hardships are what makes the virtues grow strongest in us. But we should definitely take the path of breathing easier and going, even in this big, difficult moment, God has told me that he is my father. Jesus has revealed this to us, and therefore I know that I can put my trust in him and sit back and understand he's the one in charge, not me. Okay, so hopefully that one helps a little bit with that gift of hope. Not a whimsical wish, but a firm trust in God because it's coming from him and it's by the grace of the Holy Spirit. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening on your radio computer, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo, please know. We'll be right back with more about the theological and cardinal virtues with Cody Marincer. Back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation. One body, one body, stewarding God's creation. The theological and cardinal virtues. Now here's Cody Marincer. So then let's move on to charity. Charity is uh, one of my favorites here. Charity is also known as love. But the reason why I always use charity and why the catechism uses charity in in, uh, paragraph number 1822 is because our world has a completely erroneous view of love nowadays. And I don't even have to go into it for you guys to really understand that. I know probably everybody out there listening looks around and goes, yeah, we say love about everything. We throw that word around and nobody even really knows what it means. Well, the theological virtue of love is the theological virtue of charity. And the catechism says charity is a theological virtue by which we love God above all things for his own sake and our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. Now, when we say that, so many things come up. But I think the first thing that we have to understand is love does not necessarily mean like. Once again, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity says, there's one person in this world that I love constantly, but I don't like a lot. And that person is myself. He says, there's a lot of things that I do, like sinful things, that afterwards I look back and go, I'm kind of disgusted with myself, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm trying to give you the gist of what he's saying. Uh, But, you know, he's saying, I'm disgusted with myself and why I did that. So at that moment, he's not liking himself, and I can say the same thing. There are many moments when I don't like myself because of the things that I've done, but I still love myself. And the difference there is that I want the best for myself. Well, what is the best for me? What is the best for my neighbor? What is the best for my enemy? The best for all of us in all those situations is that we would all end up in a relationship with our Father in heaven. 
And so if we can understand that that's what charity means, charity means that God is goodness himself. God is love himself. They're not these um, things that God has. It is God's essence. Love is God's essence. Justice, mercy is God's essence, right? And so his essence has to return back to him. And charity then is us letting that essence rebound back to God, understanding that he is greater than we. He is our creator. We are his creation. And yet he is our father and we can return that love back to him. And so then we take that charity and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Once again, we don't always like ourselves. We don't always like our neighbor. And, you know, we shouldn't. There are a lot of things that we should not like that we do and that our neighbors do and that our enemies do. But we once again should love all people, starting with ourselves, meaning that not that we have this crazy, weird obsession with that, like that we're better than everybody else or anything like that, but that we want what's best for all of us. And once again, that is to be in heaven with our father. All right. Let's hop back over now to the cardinal virtues and we'll talk about the second cardinal virtue of justice. I hope that you guys are starting to see, and I'm trying to connect the dots here, how all of these virtues do work with and inform one another. How the cardinal virtues help with the theological virtues and how the theological virtues help with the cardinal virtues. And so this one of justice, paragraph 1807 in the Catechism says, Justice is the moral virtue that consists in the constant and firm will to give their due to God and neighbor. That should sound pretty familiar, considering we just went through the theological virtue of charity. And so with justice, then, if we are going to give God his due, well, what is his due? Well, God is our creator. I mean, is there anything bigger or better than that in the first place? Right. But more than just being our creator, more than just being like a human who creates a statue, you know, there we are, the creator of this thing. But God didn't just create a thing. He created a being. And then he didn't just create a being. He breathed his very essence into that being. And he became one of those beings. And so it has been said that God became man so that man could become God. And that simply means that Jesus became incarnate so that he could bring us back into God's family, that we could have a familial relationship with our Father like he intended us to. And that's where I always try to teach people that we have to get ourselves past the view that God is just waiting for us to mess up. That hell is this place that God really kind of likes because um, he's just waiting to throw sinners there. I think a lot of people really do have that view. I mean, especially people who struggle with the faith and people who are um, agnostic, you know, or even maybe claim that they're atheists. They, that's what they want to say is, you know, well, there's only a hell because, um, you know, God is uh, not really um, just. He's not really merciful like you guys say he is. Well, if people really understood God and his essence and understood uh, what hell is and what heaven is, well, then we would get a different view of things. And if we take ourselves then past that view of a master-slave relationship and understand that we truly have a God who became one of us, who ate, who suffered, who died, who had anxieties and, and all kinds of other things through his human nature, but still has fully his God nature, well, then that's, that's just mind-blowing. That's like one of us trying to become a dog, um, as I think Father Fred has put it before, and teach the uh, dog race how to, uh, how to make correct moral decisions. But the problem is you can only speak dog. 
right? I mean, and that's probably even on a um, on a lower level than what God did for us. Us becoming a dog would be much more of a uh, lower sacrifice than what it was for God to become a human being. And so if we can really understand that that's honestly how much God loves us, that he would enter into this thing with us to show us the way and to show us truly what charity is, there's that theological virtue again, well then, wow, why would we not follow that? Why would we not take that upon ourselves and say, okay, I'm created by my Father. My Father who created me knows What's going to bring me happiness? And if he knows what's going to bring me happiness, and if heaven is about being in eternal happiness with the one being that I am supposed to be with for all of eternity, then that will give us a greater view of this virtue then of justice, right? Because now we would say, well, what is due to God? He's my creator. He's my father. I, of course I should honor him. Right? The Ten Commandments, they're not, as it has been said before, they're not this fence that's like keeping us out of all the fun around us, you know, and like keeping us in this little prison compound. They're actually like a fence around the playground so we don't run out in the street and get smashed by a car. And so... If we give justice to God, if we humble ourselves and show love back to Him, show charity back to Him, well, if we start there, then we're going to get charity towards our neighbor right also, I believe. And it's also been said we can only love God as much as we love our neighbor. Well, that really then should help us to start acting differently towards one another. And if we would take this cardinal virtue of justice upon us and say, what can I do in this situation? Right? I'm a billionaire. I have $15 billion. Do I really need to amass more money just for the sake of having more money? Or could I maybe pay my employees better? Could I maybe pay them a higher wage? Could I maybe send some money here? Could I maybe send uh, some goods over this way? You know, this is just one really simple example. But that's just in the form of money. Justice can be done in all kinds of ways. But another way that justice can be done is in the difficult way. And this is what we tend to have a problem with. Justice doesn't mean, you know, looking the other way when something bad is happening. If somebody is doing something immoral, then it is our duty to give them some fraternal correction. You know, the problem is that our society has gone so far in the direction of you can't judge me that everybody is afraid now to call out sin where it is. And I hope to God that if I'm ever doing something that is immoral, somebody will have the guts to use this cardinal virtue of justice and say, hey, man, what are you doing? Right. I'm concerned about you. And here's where this has to come from. Once again, this has to come from charity. If you come at somebody because you just want to go, you're a screw up. You should live like me because I'm so awesome. Well, that's not going to do anything. Right. Uh, it might be partially true because maybe they are screwing up, but you trying to be holier than thou is not going to help the situation at all. We have to have an honest and sincere thought for those people and desire for those people that we want them in heaven also. And if that is our desire for them, then that cardinal virtue of justice will drive us to say, what you're doing right now is not charitable. And it's going to cause possibly the loss of your eternal life and maybe the loss of somebody else's eternal life. Let me help you out, man. Let me please do whatever I can. I'm not perfect, but please, please, you've got to stop doing what you're doing here. And so that's the big thing about the cardinal virtue of justice is it doesn't just mean, right, like paying a fair wage. And I think this is a really big one for parents. Okay, um, this is one that I struggle with sometimes is that uh, when we when we give our children a punishment, if it's a fair and just punishment, then we've got to follow through with it. 
It's real easy to throw things out there when uh, a child is acting as they're not supposed to be acting. And in that moment of anger, you just kind of say, well, I'm just going to throw all your toys away. Well, you know, that's not really a legitimate uh, punishment anyway. That's just kind of a threat and an angerish, I'm just going to throw something out. But if you give an honest punishment that is deserved, then you've got to follow through with it. And the cardinal virtue of justice is going to help us do that. Because in the end, what you're going to find is your children are going to respect you for standing up and doing the right thing when you did punish them and when you followed through instead of caving in and letting them have a learned behavior of all I have to do is wait for a while, let it wash over, and mom and dad will just forget about my punishment anyway. So, moving on then to the cardinal virtue of fortitude. Now, fortitude in the catechism says, fortitude is the moral virtue that ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. It strengthens the resolve to resist temptations and to overcome obstacles in the moral life. The virtue of fortitude enables one to conquer fear, even fear of death, and to face trials and persecutions. It disposes one even to renounce and sacrifice his life in defense of a just cause. Wow. Just reading that should give you, should kind of make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And I think that is because, you know, when we read that, we're like, man, that is the manly thing to do. And, you know, fortitude is the, uh, it's the gift of strength in that moment of temptation. And so, as I've said a couple times already, we're going to see now how all of these virtues then work together. Right? Fortitude, if fortitude is the, the gift that gives us strength, well, where are we going to need that? We're going to need that strength in those moments when we have to make those prudential judgments. If we're in a moment of temptation, follow me here for a minute. And maybe I'm the only one like this, but I doubt it. I bet that many of you listening have the same issue that I have. When you're about to fall to sin, do you really stop and think in that moment, what am I about to do? Is this a sin? After I do this, what am I going to get out of it? And what is it really going to bring me? Or do you kind of go into that panic mode? It's kind of like, let me explain it a little better in case maybe you're not understanding me. But it's like um, somebody who's... Um, Let's take gluttony uh, for uh, an example. Somebody who just cannot turn down food. Do you think that they think at those moments when they've already had plenty, they're, they're already kind of sick, and they're looking at this fifth piece of cake and then going, oh, I just have to have that. Do you think they're actually sitting there going, okay, is this sinful? Um, what am I going to get out of it? Is this going to be good or bad? No, I don't think so. Because I know in my own life, when it comes to temptations like that, I get tunnel vision. I get almost this anxiety. I cannot, no, I, I shouldn't say I cannot, because it's not that I cannot. It's that I won't. I won't take the time to stop for just a minute and think about my actions and where they're taking me and whether they are sinful or not. If I would just start there, then I think I would not fall into sin nearly as much as I do. But instead, I get that anxiety of almost like whatever pleasure I'm going to get out of whatever sin it is, um, I've got to have that pleasure now. I have to have it. I have to have it. I have to have it. And I let that anxiety that, that uh, 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 build up in me. And then I just let it overtake me until I sin, 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 sin. And you just sell out to it. Well, that's what this gift of fortitude is going to help us to do then, is instead of just selling out to that sin because you think you have to have that pleasure at that moment, or who knows what. Like I said, we don't think past that. Are we going to die if we don't get that pleasure? No. In fact, what is going to happen? We know that the pillars of our faith, you know, um, it, it, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, 
Um, if we do those things, we grow in holiness. And so this gift of fortitude is going to give us the strength in those moments of temptation to use our gift of prudence and make the right decision. But once again, going back to what I said a while ago, it doesn't just happen on its own. We have to put the work in. We live in a society that wants everything now, and they want it easy. You guys probably remember the, I think it was a Staples uh, commercial that had the easy button, and it was kind of always a funny commercial. But it really does kind of speak volumes of to uh, our world that we live in. People don't want to put effort into things. In fact, I was talking with a student not too long ago, and they, we were discussing uh, a moral issue. And uh, the bell rang, and as we were discussing it, I said, uh, you know, this is a good place for us to start, but why don't you go and uh, look this up and do a little bit more studying on this? And the student just looked at me and rolled their eyes like, you got to be kidding me. I got to do something outside of class. And, you know, I'm not trying to knock all the students, but I know that that's how all of us are many times. We kind of just think that all of this stuff should just be easy buttoned or that all of a sudden there's going to be this age. Well, when I'm 30 or when I'm 35 or when I'm 40 or when I'm 45, it's just going to all of a sudden happen. Right. That doesn't happen. We have to be willing to work on these virtues. And fortitude is a gift that has been given to us. But once again, just like lifting weights to keep our muscles strong, we have to keep our spiritual muscles strong or they are going to become weak when they are not used. Well, we're almost out of time here, folks. And so I'm going to close with the uh, last cardinal virtue of temperance. Temperance, according to the catechism, is the moral virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures and provides balance in the use of created goods. It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limits of what is honorable. The temperate person directs the sensitive appetites toward what is good and maintains a healthy discretion. Boy, if that didn't just say volumes... As Catholics, we have to be countercultural, right? We have to live in the world, but we should not be worldly. Our eyes should always be directed towards heaven. And temperance here, we can see how it is helped by the cardinal virtue of fortitude and prudence. By fortitude, to have the strength to overcome those temptations. Because if temperance is the moral virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures, well, then we're going to need to have strength when those temptations come along. Because our world is and always has been filled with all kinds of pleasures. Now, you could say that our world today is filled with more pleasures than it ever has been, and that's probably right. But that doesn't mean that uh, other societies have never fought against it. There were many of other societies. Look at the Roman society that had all kinds of sensual pleasures and other things that everybody just gave into in a moment's notice. And so we need that gift of fortitude to give us strength in that moment of temptation. And we all know what that's like. That is, when you're about to do something, you get that little tap on the shoulder by God. You get that in the in the back of your mind, you know what you're about to do is wrong. But the problem is we push it even further back in our minds. Once again, we go to that point of, of tunnel vision, of anxiety, and I've got to have this pleasure now, or probably the worst thing in the world is going to happen, or I'm going to die without it, whatever it is. But no, we need to just calm down. Notice how even just in speaking about it, when I get all worked up as I'm talking about falling into sin, when we talk about temperance, we come back down to that just more, let me take a big, deep breath. And dear God, I know in this situation, I'm about to do what's wrong. But I also know that you've given me the cardinal virtue of fortitude to help me be temperate in this situation. 
Do I really need a fifth piece of cake? No, I don't. Right? Do I really need to go home with this person and do things that I shouldn't be doing? No, I don't. Right? Do I really need to amass more wealth just to have more wealth? No, I don't. And so we've got to take that time to step back and see that. And then use, once again, here comes prudence. Use that gift of prudence in that situation to say, God has taught me that greed is not a good thing. God has taught me that lust is not a good thing. God has taught me that gluttony is not a good thing. And because I owe justice to God, I owe justice to um, my neighbor, then I'm not going to do this. And so temperance then is that help to justice. A temperate man then won't be greedy and will therefore render to others what they are due instead of hoarding so much to themselves. Think how far temperance would take this world after we have taken care of ourselves and our families if we just freely gave to those in need instead of uh, amassing and being greedy like the world tells us to do. You need this, you need this, you need this, and you need this. Right? Hopefully we have seen then this hour that the cardinal and theological virtues work within one another. They help us to do what's right. And secondly... If we don't work on them, they will slowly wither away. So God bless you all. Thank you very much. If this talk came out as anything good, um, please give glory to the Holy Spirit because I owe all honor and glory to Him. It is only uh, because of the Holy Spirit using me as His instrument that that would be any good. If this is any bad, well then that falls on me. And trust me, my wife will let me know. God bless you all. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to this week's One Body Show, Stewarding God's Creation. If you would like to comment on today's show, please go to DV, V as in Victor, dvmercy.com and click on the One Body icon. Scroll to the middle of the page and click on Comment on Show. Also, if you can help this nonprofit station pay its monthly bills, please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. If today you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. Stewarding God's creation.